Thank you for downloading this podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. The following article is from the May 2006 Scottish Rite Reporter and is actually a reprint from the Grand Lodge of California. The Undivided Craft, Freemasonry in the Civil War. In the years leading up to the Civil War, the United States was divided among political, economic, and social lines far more the slavery question cast over all the other issues, regional rivalries, trade, development of the country's natural resources, and settling the West. Important institutions split over the slavery question. For example, the Democratic Party split along regional lines, and the Southern Baptist Church and the Southern Methodist Church were founded. Freemasonry was the one institution that did not suffer a split. The principles of the craft outweighed all other considerations in the hearts and minds of its members. This story is best told through a selection of vignettes originally written by the great American Masonic student, Alan Roberts. Joseph Fort Newton... D.D. was a leading Masonic writer and teacher, and the author of The Builders. In his autobiography, he wrote the following about his introduction to Freemasonry. My father had been a soldier in the Southern Army, taken prisoner at Arkansas Post. He was carried up the Mississippi River to Rock Island, Illinois. My father became desperately ill and made himself known as a Mason to an officer of the camp. The officer took him to his own home and nursed him back to life. When the war ended, he loaned Father money to pay his way back to his Texas home and gave him a pearl-handled pistol to protect himself. This experience of my father, when I learned about it, had a very great influence upon my life. The fact that such a fraternity of men could exist, mitigating the harshness of war, and remain unbroken when states and churches were torn in two became a wonder, and it is not strange that I tried for years to repay my debt to it. Dr. Newman became a Master Mason at the age of 21 in Friendship Lodge No. 7, Dixon, Illinois. John W. Geary was made a Mason at sight on January 4, 1847 in Pennsylvania, just before he left with his troops to fight in the Mexican War. When in California, he was stationed in San Francisco and served as one of its first mayors. He caused the land that became Union Square to be set aside as a park. Geary Street is named for him. During the Civil War, he was commanding Union General at the fall of Savannah, Georgia. He placed federal troops about the quarters of Solomon's Lodge No. 1 to save it from looting and damage. Later, while Geary was governor of Pennsylvania, the Lodge sent him a resolution of thanks. He answered by claiming it was the principles and tenets of Freemasonry that helped Reconstruction to be as successful as it finally turned out to be. In this reply, he said, I feel again justified in referring to our beloved institution by saying that to Freemasonry the people of the country are indebted for many mitigations of the suffering caused by the direful passions of war. The Battle of Antietam was the single bloodiest day of fighting ever during the bitter Civil War. Over 23,000 men were killed or wounded. During this horrible and bloody battle, numerous instances occurred that showed the enduring nature of brotherly love and relief in times of trouble. On the morning following the battle, Confederate sharpshooters fired at anything that moved. A wounded Confederate handed a Union sentry a piece of cloth on which the square and compass was crudely drawn in blood. 
The sentry carried it to a captain who recognized the Masonic emblem. The captain told the colonel that a wounded Confederate needed help. The colonel asked for volunteers, and several Masons offered to help. At the risk of their lives, they went to and carried the fallen lieutenant of the Alabama Volunteers to the 5th New Hampshire Field Hospital. The lieutenant told them about another Mason lying wounded in the cornfield. Back they went and carried him to join the other enemy soldier. Both men received the same treatment, as did the Federal wounded from the camp surgeon, a Freemason, Dr. William Child. These were men who truly remembered their obligation to never hesitate to go out of their way to raise a fallen brother. Confederate Masons, no less than their Union counterparts, remembered the obligation of the craft in the midst of war. The Federal gunboat USS Albatross, under the command of John Hart, hurled shell after shell into the village of St. Francisville, Louisiana. Later, the crew sent a small boat under the flag of truce to the shore. The executive officer asked for a Mason. The senior warden of Feliciana Lodge No. 31, W.W. Leake, answered the call. When informed that Captain Hart, who was a Freemason, was dead, Brother Leake immediately offered to open his lodge and bury Hart with Masonic rites. Over the years, the United Daughters of the Confederacy kept his grave fresh and green. Over in 1972, the Grand Lodge of Louisiana replaced the simple headstone with a monument that covered Hart's entire grave. The monument was engraved. This monument is dedicated in loving tribute to the universality of Freemasonry. An interesting story of Masonic unity in the face of political conflict occurred in Denver Lodge No. 5. The members appeared to be evenly divided in their affinity for the opposing sides in the war. This appeared to be a problem that couldn't be overcome, so the Lodge recommended to the Grand Lodge of Colorado that a charter be granted for the formation of Union Lodge. It was granted, but not a single member of Denver Lodge demitted to affiliate with a new one. They had learned it is not necessary for all Freemasons to think alike to remain friends and brothers. When Richmond, Virginia fell to the Union soldiers in 1865, mobs burned warehouses, blew up ships, and generally set fire to the property along the James River. Mason's Hall, built in 1785, was close to this area. The federal provost marshal, A. H. Stevens, a member of Putnam Lodge in Massachusetts, placed a guard around the building, plus the homes of several members of the lodge. Shortly thereafter, federal and confederate members of the craft met in harmony in the same building. Finally, an instance of true friendship extending beyond the barriers of war is that of General Louis A. Armistead of Alexandria Washington Lodge No. 22 and Colonel, later General, Henry H. Bingham. General Armistead was among the Confederate generals leading the ill-fated Pickett's Charge storming the hills in the Battle of Gettysburg. General Armistead was mortally wounded when he reached the top of the ridge. Colonel Bingham was sent by General Hancock to assist their Masonic brother. A monument commissioned and dedicated by the Grand Lodge of Pennsylvania in 1993 at the National Cemetery Annex at Gettysburg commemorates this selfless act of brotherly love. The monument is inscribed simply, Friend to Friend, a Brotherhood Undivided. When the shooting war ended, the antagonism was more bitter than ever, but it was Freemasonry that was most directly responsible for easing the pangs of hatred. Kindness shown by former foes who were Masons became the links in the chain of unity. These lessons of the past are most important for us to remember. Our brethren of the Civil War could have been forgiven if they had turned their backs on those in distress. But they did not. They helped the Mason and non-Mason whenever and wherever they could, and were better men and Freemasons for it. And our fraternity and the world are better because of them. Unfortunately, the past is far too often forgotten. Countless people consider Freemasonry's first tenant brotherly love as just so much sentimentality. Group is fighting group, section is antagonizing section, and competing ideologies and political opinions are running rampant. 
I will leave you with this challenge. Would you as Masons today act as our Civil War brethren and put aside political and personal differences for the sake of another brother known only to you as a Mason? The following is from the June 2006 Scottish Rite Reporter, as an, is an excerpt from Befriend and Relieve Every Brother, Freemasonry During Wartime. Masonic Power Through an Apron Mrs. W.P. McGuire, a sister-in-law of Dr. Hunter McGuire, related her experiences of the war in regards to the power of Freemasonry to a state convention of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. She said that as a young girl in Richmond, and later in Albemarle County, Virginia, she had a deathly fear of Yankees. For safety, her family was boarding with a Mrs. Meriwether Anderson just above Ivy Depot in Albemarle County. One afternoon, the 16-year-old son of Mrs. Anderson came running into the house to announce that the Yankee cavalry was 12 miles away in Greenwood Station. This would have been General Philip Sheridan's cavalry heading for Richmond. Immediately, this young man and the Negro started to move the livestock into the wooden area further off the main road. The old family mammy was more frightened than anyone since she thought the troops were out to capture Mrs. McGuire's 12-year-old brother. By 8 o'clock that evening, only two lone women and a lot of young people and the servants were on the property. All the valuables, along with the silver, had been hidden and the few bottles of whiskey were hidden in the mattresses. These were the first things the troops always looked for but were not able to find here. Miss McGuire recollected, We all sat up, waiting breathlessly until morning, no enemy appearing until later in the day, when they were full of force, a lot of miserable drunken soldiers who surrounded and filled the house, uttering oaths, brandishing swords, and pointing their pistols at the heads of the damned women, as they called them, and ordering them to give up everything in the way of provisions. The smokehouse was ransacked and emptied, and the meat was strewn in the roads afterwards. I remember what was a great distress to us children, seeing a can of sorghum molasses of 15 or 20 gallons being emptied into the yard. Our terror was beyond description, not knowing what would happen next. When we thought probably the house would be burned, Mrs. Anderson turned to my mother and said, My father and husband were both Masons, and I have taken a woman's degree, and I have a Mason's apron. I am going to get it and see what can be done with it. She got it from a bureau drawer and headed to the porch. The house was surrounded by troopers who guarded it while others ransacked the inside. She stood up on a bench, holding this little apron in her hand, and cried, Is there no one here who can protect the widow of a mason? Instantly, a soldier dismounted, grabbed the apron, examined it, then went inside and ordered every soldier out. The house and yard were cleared of them, and for the next three days in which the army was encamped in the field near the house, no soldier came inside the yard gate. It was the most thrilling scene that I have ever witnessed. I have often wondered who that soldier was, and if the scene could have been as impressive to him as it was to us. Liberty of the Camp Captain J. M. Bosing of Company C, 4th Regiment, Stonewall Brigade of Virginia, related in his memoirs his experiences after he was captured during the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. Separated from the main Confederate column, he became lost, and while wandering, stumbled into some Union pickets who he wisely felt he needed to surrender to. He tied a handkerchief to a stick and stepped out in order for them to clearly see his flag of truce. Two of the pickets approached him, and he informed them that there were four of them who wanted to surrender. They were then taken back to the regiment's headquarters, and the colonel was informed that there were four Johnnies who had come in. The colonel came out and gave them a friendly greeting. Noticing the dingy gold lace on Balsing's shoulder of his faded gray jacket, the colonel asked him of which command they came from. He continued to ask them questions in regards to their command, the morale of the men, and how they thought the war was going. Balsing told him that they were all well-pleased and very hopeful. 
Finally, Bossing excused himself from answering any other questions. The colonel invited him into his tent. Shortly thereafter, the lieutenant colonel and the major arrived and were introduced to Bossing. All three were nice gentlemen, and after a while, one of them noticed Bossing's Masonic ring. It turned out that all three were Masons. They made him at home and had a very pleasant evening. The colonel told Bossing that if he would give him his promise not to try to escape, the colonel would give Bossing the liberty of the camp. Bossing agreed, knowing that he would probably be going to Fredericksburg the next day, and he wanted to attempt an escape on the way there. That night, after they talked, the three northern masons inquired if he had any money and offered him five dollars, which he accepted. The next day, he was taken by wagon to Fredericksburg. About a week later, he was taken to Belle Plain, a boat landing. The next morning, they were put in a line to be searched by a big Yankee sergeant. They were ordered to take everything out of their pockets. The sergeant checked to see that nothing was left. When it came to Bosing's time, all he had was his handkerchief and the $5 greenback that had been given to him. The sergeant asked where the money had come from. Informed that it was a present, he wanted to know from whom. Swearing, he said that Bossing could not keep it. Bossing knew that he really needed to hold on to his money, so he told the sergeant that some officers who were masons had given it to him. A nearby lieutenant invited him to his tent, and there he learned that he was also a mason. The lieutenant told him that he could stay in his tent that night, but Bossing declined, as he preferred to stay with his men. The men were preparing supper when Bossing arrived back in camp, and they had some small tent flies to, to sleep under that night. Later, the lieutenant sent for him again. The lieutenant offered him a drink, but Bossing did not drink, so he declined that offer, but said that the men in camp would sure appreciate a drink. The lieutenant gave him a pint of whiskey and sent him back to the camp, where the men enjoyed it. The following article is from the August 2008 Scottish Rite Reporter. Masonic Friendships We've all heard about events during wars where Masons on both sides of the conflict will come together as brothers, either for a meeting or to honor their fallen comrades with Masonic services. These events seem to have been most prevalent during our Civil War. One such event has been immortalized in the Friend to Friend Memorial at Gettysburg National Cemetery. Here at Long Beach, we have a small replica of the memorial on display. Now I will let you in on the backstory and how there is a Los Angeles connection to those memorialized in the statue. Today at Gettysburg, there stands a statue titled Friend to Friend, a Brotherhood Undivided. The statue portrays Confederate General Louis Armistead lying wounded in a charge up Cemetery Hill. Kneeling at his side is Union Captain Henry Bingham. Armistead was a captain in the Mexican-American War and wounded at Chapultepec. The statue depicts Armistead handing Bingham his effects and requesting he convey them along with a message of regret to his old friend General Winfield Scott Hancock, who was also wounded the same day. Armistead died two days later. In his letter to Hancock, Bingham related that Armistead said, Tell General Hancock for me that I have done him and done you all an injury which I shall regret or repent. Forgot the exact word, the longest day I live. The events leading up to the statue took place on July 3rd as Hancock continued in his position on Cemetery Ridge and thus bore the brunt of Pickett's charge. During the massive Confederate artillery bombardment that preceded the infantry assault, Hancock was prominent on horseback in reviewing and engaging his troops. When one of his subordinates protested, General, the Corps commander, ought not to risk his life that way, Hancock is said to have replied, There are times when a Corps commander's life does not count. During the infantry assault, his old friend, Brigadier General Louis A. Armistead, was leading a brigade in Major General George Pickett's division. Hancock could not be with his friend Armistead because he had just been wounded himself, a severe injury caused by a bullet striking the pommel of his saddle, entering his inner right thigh along with wood fragments and a bent large nail. 
Helped from his horse by aids and with the tourniquet applied to staunch the bleeding, he removed the saddle nail himself and, mistaking its source, remarked wryly, They must be hard up for ammunition when they throw such a shot as that. News of Armistead's mortal wounding was brought to Hancock by a member of his staff, Captain Henry H. Bigham. Despite his pain, Hancock refused evacuation to the rear until the battle was resolved. Winfield Scott Hancock was a career U.S. Army officer and the Democratic nominee for President of the United States in 1880. He served with distinction in the Army for four decades, including service in the Mexican-American War and as a Union General in the American Civil War. Known to his Army colleagues as Hancock the Superb, he was noted in particular for his personal leadership at the Battle of Gettysburg in 1863. One military historian wrote, no other Union general at Gettysburg dominated men by the sheer force of their presence more completely than Hancock. As another wrote, his tactical skill had won him the quick admiration of adversaries who had come to know him as the thunderbolt of the Army of the Potomac. His military service continued after the Civil War, as Hancock participated in the military reconstruction of the South and the Army's presence at the Western Frontier. After the Civil War, Hancock's reputation as a soldier and his dedication to conservative constitutional principles made him a presidential possibility. His noted integrity was a counterpoint to the corruption of the era, for as President Rutherford B. Hayes said, If, when we make up our estimate of a public man, conspicuous both as a soldier and in civil life, we are to think first and chiefly of his manhood, his integrity, his purity, his singleness of purpose, and his unselfish devotion to duty, we can truthfully say of Hancock that he was through and through pure gold. This nationwide popularity led the Democrats to nominate him for president in 1880. Although he ran a strong campaign, Hancock was defeated by Republican James Garfield by the closest popular vote margin in American history. Armistead and Hancock became friends as they served together in Los Angeles during the Mexican-American War. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.